Welcome to X-Rated Movies. This is a movie podcast by two guys who used to date, and now they no longer date. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Whedon. I'm another one of your hosts, Matthew Fisher. What's up, Ryan? I just, I'm feeling 180 episodes old. (laughs) Yeah, well, congratulations. You you, uh, uh, remembered your age correctly. (laughs) Yes, this is episode 180. Woof. Big, big milestone. We're, uh... It's the one everyone talks about. <laughs> yeah. That, th- this is the syndication episode. Ah, and now okay. Uh-huh. we can go into podcast syndication. Nice. You know, I was thinking, okay, 180 episodes. We've done a lot of, lot of movies. Oof, yeah. Like, by, by any standards, we've covered a lot of ground. And I still feel like there's stuff that we have not covered on the podcast. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean just, like, specific movies or things near and dear to our heart. I mean, like... Are we ever going to do a, a good musical? Sure. Probably. May, uh, really? We did. We did. Little Shop of Horrors. Okay. Okay. But, like, what about, like, a classic MGM musical or something? Like, where are, are my fair's ladies and... Uh, our West Sides stories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, are we ever going to cover a classic musical like that? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just starting to think, like, are, are we in our groove? Are we so tunnel visioned on our own genres Genre. that uh we're just leaving things to the wayside like we're ever gonna do a saw movie no i mean there's like nine of them and they redefine the genre yeah like and we just don't give a fuck about no, it oh yeah oh so are you, what, what you're telling me i'm picking up on is that you think we're a little myopic at the moment and that we need to branch out well i'm just asking like what are some things that you think that, you know, genres or types of movies or franchises perhaps that, like, we'll just never cover? I never want to say never. I don't know. I don't, I don't see us uh, really ever doing a silent movie unless it shows up on AFI because it would be tough to do some sound drops for that. That no, would be tough, yeah. Um, it doesn't really lend itself to the audio medium. I don't really see us doing... Uh, uh, we've done what one western? Yeah, I would do more westerns though. I like westerns. I like westerns too. So what's stopping us though? I don't know. I mean, our one of our favorite westerns, of course, is on AFI. So we're, we have to wait for that roulette number to come up. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe we have to put our foot on the on the little on the wheel on the wheel. <laughs> yeah, on the lever. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, we've done. One Western in 180 episodes, which is more than 180 movies. Well, so, okay, let's see. You know how, like, the MPAA rating logo comes up on movies and it said, this is movie number blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. I always try to, especially when it's a newer movie, I try to be like, oh, I wonder what number this is. Because it's fun to see, like, oh, man, they've been rating movies for since the 50s, 40s long time something like that yeah uh and like that's when they like i don't even know what number one was but um they're in the like six hundred thousand realm at this point sure so uh you know we've only done 180 that's a that's a penny in the bucket of pennies <laughs> yeah in the pool of pennies uh so you know you why just, aren't you just using the water as a metaphor <laughs> a drop in the bucket or just a drop in the ocean or something. this is a penny uh, metaphor, Matt. 
maybe there's pennies that have uh, have Western themes to them. Okay. Well, I was gonna say like, what Westerns have you been uh, eschewing all these years? Well, or do you not want to play that those cards? I mean, yeah, Unforgiven's a big one. Uh, love to talk about that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, okay, Great sure. movie. Yeah, sure. Um, you uh, just think you just think Clint Eastwood's handsome. That's all. Uh, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Okay. But sure, I'm gonna go with it. Yeah, young Clint Eastwood. Oh yeah, he could get it back in his day. Mm. Melts my beef bit butter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I um, I feel like there's nothing that's off limits. Like yeah. I'm happy to talk about anything. Yeah. Is there anything you won't talk about? Like you refuse to? Well, I mean, I only controlled fifty percent of the movies that we watch on this podcast. So, mm-hmm. you know, the other fifty percent are are whatever willy nilly picks, but. You know, I am determined to one day do a Steven Spielberg movie. Oh, it'll happen. I mean, we've done three Robert Zemeckis movies, uh, no Steven Spielberg, and I feel like they kind of take up the same lane a little bit. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And uh, we've celebrated one and uh, totally just uh, kicked around the other. Mm -hmm. We've done three Frank Oz movies. Oh, my God. And he's only got like five. (laughs) I was thinking, I mean, this will come back later, but like we've done three movies with Terry Garr in them. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. Not that, like, she's a bad actress or, like, doesn't deserve to be talked about. I just feel like, how many Ellen Burstyn movies have we done? One. Oh, The Exorcist. Yeah. Yeah. So, what the fuck? And, uh, yeah, we haven't circled back to William Friedkin in a long time. I know. That's overdue. Ugh. But, yeah, I was just thinking, I was just, uh, uh, I don't know. Oh, because there's, like, a new Saw movie coming out that has Chris Rock in it. How about that? And I was like, wow, this is like the 10th Saw movie or something. And I was like, those movies are like a big deal. Like, they don't make 10 of them if people aren't watching them. Yeah. And I was like, well, we haven't done any. And I have no plans to do any. (laughs) Well, I feel like when we started this, I knew that, like, what was going to separate us from other movie podcasts was our taste. Okay. And so it's like... Our crummy, gay, <laughs> film-infested taste. Yeah. Ghost ships <laughs> and... Uh, shit musicals. Shit musicals. Your sexy shockers. Yeah. Good and bad. Yep. You know, slashers of, of all varieties. <laughs> uh, that's what makes us us. Yeah. You know? I like... There's, I, there's a part of me that doesn't want to stray too far from that. Like, I don't mind a little pop here and there pop a color mm-hmm. you know uh, uh zing you got like uh, uh a douglas sirk movie or and, okay and which bam, we haven't done yet but you've got a uh a nickelodeon kids movie from the 90s also haven't um, done yet yeah but you know i like where you're going with this you're you're playful you're in the zone we can we can do all that harriet the spy coming up next week on x-rated movies yep. <laughs> uh but you know we can also uh we got it we got to keep our trunk sturdy before we branch out, mm. you know, you think you, at 180, are we, are we sturdy enough? You know, sometimes you got to nourish the trunk, and sometimes you got to go out on a limb. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it all builds on itself, and uh, this is a journey. I don't have like you know boxes that need ticking. I'm kind of just reacting willy nilly. Yeah, so, yeah, and Willie's okay with that. Oh, I love it when you just pick movies at random, Ryan. Thanks, Willie.
see what's on the horizon. I don't know. We've done 180 movies. We'll see what's in the next 180. Okay. All right. But today, we're going to knock two movies off my list. I don't know if they've been on yours. We've got two big directors. Yeah. We've got some big talent going on. Yeah. We've got uh, we got a lot. I think we've got a lot to talk about today. I think so, as uh, both these movies deal with a subject matter that's near and dear to your heart. Ah. Today's uh, double feature is a pairing of movies whose main character is an audio engineer. There's about six movies that star audio engineers, so kind of knocking two off. I was going to say, I can only think of three, and we're doing two of them here. Yeah, so um, that's okay. They're actually of a piece, too, but we're doing uh, The Conversation and Blowout. I don't know which one you want to start with. I'm comfortable with whatever one you'd like to start with. Um, I watched them blow out, then the conversation. Okay, I watched the conversation, then blow out. Fuck. So, but uh, I'm versatile. I can go whichever way you need me to be. Let's go ahead and get the conversation out of the way. Okay. That's a fun sentence. <laughs> uh, because... I feel like that one I have higher-minded thoughts to say about. Oh, so. all right. Do we want to talk about our cocktail yes, first? Yes, of course we do. I made a special cocktail. Haven't done this in a while. What's it called? It's called a hot mic. And what's it made out of? Well, it's tequila. And I made a little bit of uh, cayenne-infused honey simple syrup. And uh, the mixer is Mike's Hard Lemonade, hence the hot mic. And uh, it's it's pretty tasty. It's pretty tasty. You're into it, okay? Uh, well, uh, I like a little spice in my drink. I'm, okay. You know, I've always been a Bloody Mary fan. Mm-hmm. Like, even before I was like legally able to drink, mm. big fan of Bloody Marys. And yeah, just the the right amount of hotness goes a long way. But uh, you know, you get that balance right, and mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. yeah, these are dangerous since they're pretty much all alcohol (laughs) and mike's hard lemonade that's so much sugar like that's just asking for a hangover yeah these turned out okay considering i just made it up on out of my head yeah Um, and i haven't bartended in nine months so (sighs) yeah did you miss it you get behind that that (laughs) you know three feet of 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 linoleum and you're just like this is what i was meant to do it was like cocktail i'm like (laughs) flinging bottles and (laughs) it all came back to me yeah or was it more like, uh, uh, you know, like platoon and like Barber's Adagio for strings came on as you were like pouring into the jigger? <laughs> Can it be both? Can it be like flipping <laughs> bottles, but Barber's Adagio? It's like the bottles like spitting in your hand as you're crying. It's and all slow motion. Adagio is playing. <laughs> yeah, that feels a little more. Like what it was like. <laughs> uh, so the conversation. Finally, we're doing a good Francis Ford Coppola movie. So on our Dementia 13 episode, which was not that long ago, it was just during Schlocktoberfest of this season, uh-huh. uh, you mentioned at some point that if if your introduction to Francis Ford Coppola was the movies we had covered on the podcast, so Dementia 13 and Twixt, <laughs> You would never know. <laughs> he was a powerhouse of American cinema. Oh, my God. So I think this movie is, what, like 10 years after Dementia 13? 
Yeah, Dementia 13 was... 63, right? 63, yeah. Yeah, this is 72, so nine years. No, 74. 11 years. Yeah, so not realistically, not that long. Mm-mm. He grew a lot. <laughs> like, Twixt is over 11 years old now. <laughs> like, Oh, boy. And, yeah, there's just a huge divide, like, stylistically and just level of talent. Like, there's no way you could look at Dementia 13 and realize that they'd you know, grow up to make this movie. No, nothing. Nothing in Dimension 13 tells me he had this movie Except, in him. Except, I will say one thing. You did say that he likes to make impenetrable movies. This movie's sort of impenetrable oh. from certain angles. Okay. This is a five-star movie for me, Matt. This is maybe one of my top ten favorite movies. This is a four-and-a-half-star movie for me. Okay, okay. I think it's just because there's a couple things that don't seem as tight as they could be okay okay um the dream sequence with the fog i'm just like what's this i'll grant it i'll grant it also not enough terry gar (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was like she's billed on the same uh title card as it's harrison ford and terry gar yeah which i'm like oh are they in a scene together i don't remember that but um she's no she's just in one scene yeah we get a little more terry gar captain exposition (laughs) like she's there to just sort of like serve to build his character that he, you know, keeps secrets and he doesn't like questions being asked and uh, he'd rather be alone than have someone know too much about him. Mm-hmm. I don't know why people ask me a lot of questions. I want to know you. And then she's gone. And it's like, she's excited to see him and then like the moment they have one fight, she's like, and I'm done. Yeah, but I got the feeling that like this has been going on for a while. And she's yeah. just like, you know, this is the last straw. Maybe it was just I was disappointed. I was like, oh, Terry Gar's in this. I forgot. Oh, that's her one scene. Yeah. Something about this movie makes me always forget how it plays out. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen this is my third viewing. And like, I still like as it's going on, I'm like, I don't remember how this goes. Like, I don't remember exactly how I remember like beats sort of, but I don't remember how it all plays out and how all the characters play. And like, I enjoy that aspect of watching it because it just it feels like a new movie every time I watch it. Yeah, I don't remember how like scenes resolve themselves. Like there's a lot of stuff that I really do remember, but I never remember the conclusion of a specific scene. Mm-hmm. And even now, even though I just watched this like two days ago, I'm still kind of having trouble yeah. remembering some of that stuff. What is what is that about this movie? I don't know. It it just kind of seems like the scenes don't have a solid conclusion, I guess. Like, the after-convention party scene at his workplace, like, that's a great scene. Like, I I love the stuff that happens in that scene, but I'm just like, why did everyone go? Where did... Like, I don't remember how they got from the party to, like, him sleeping with that girl. Right. To me, it's just a jump. And maybe it is just a jump in the movie. Yeah. But... Yeah, I I have trouble remembering the finer details on some of that stuff. Yeah, and this time around, that that, specifically on that scene, like when he's talking with uh, the, I think she's a hooker or something. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, I I think that's what she ends up being essentially. uh, Yeah, that whole scene where they're talking and he's like, she's like, I just you know say some things, like talk to me, get to know me. I was like, this is going on for too long. What this feels like extraneous, and then I forget. Because it comes back later that he's been recorded the whole time. I'm like, oh, that's why it's in the movie. Yeah, and it's like, it, it's sort of funny that he's recorded. And there's a lot of things that I project 
on to Harry Call. Mm-hmm. He's a sound guy, and his name's Call. Uh, Played by Gene Hackman. Yeah, which kudos to Gene Hackman because he was never a looker. Like I don't know. I just the women are throwing themselves at him in this movie. Uh, and this movie has a lot of receding hairlines. Like every male character had either like the like a widow's peak that puts mine to shame. Or, like, they were, like, closing in on balding. Yeah, no handsome people besides Harrison Ford, who still hasn't quite grown into, like... He's got, like, a weird scar on his chin. Yeah, he's always had that. Oh, that's a real scar. Yeah. That's why they make it in uh, Last Crusade, when, like, the River Phoenix storyline where he, like, whips his chin. Oh! I've never noticed it in other movies. For some reason, it was, like, really prevalent here yeah he's not i feel like he hasn't quite grown into his features no like no. he's still got a good like seven years before raiders where he, you're like he needs to be a man that's when he's, he's still a boy in this undeniably the hottest person alive but um <laughs> in this like he's the most handsome person yeah not a lot of handsome faces in no. this movie <laughs> just gonna say it but yeah so uh uh he gets that pen at the convention right and he looks down at it like he's like what the fuck is this and it's almost as if he knows that this could be a bug and he doesn't do anything about it and then when it turns out to have been a recording device like the way that i read is that he's angry at himself for not acting sooner yeah like because he like pulls it out and like breaks it and stuff you know the the whole irony driving the movie is that he's a wiretapper who values his own privacy above all else. Right. Well, I think he does because he realizes what um, revealing things about yourself could do. And part of it is like he doesn't know what is being revealed right. with this stuff. Like he didn't know what he was recording in the one job that he regrets mm-hmm. and it got those people killed. And so there's sort of a, a level of uncertainty that it's like, I think because he doesn't know what they said or or why what they said got them killed. Right. Like, that's what really haunts him. And so, like, someone could record me and get me saying maybe something just totally, you know, uh, random, but in a, a bad combination, and it sounds incriminating. I could edit together something you've said in the past that says something like, I would like to kill, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. They'd be, like, seamless. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and be like, that's him, all right. <laughs> this is the first time I've noticed how much like religion really probably plays into it. Like, there's a lot of Catholic guilt he has mm. going on and shame. And so, when you talk about him like figuring out that the microphone and like mad at himself, like that plays super into being Catholic and being like ashamed of something that you should have known better about. Sure. And um, and also like there's like a whole the whole Catholic thing too of being like separation you know from your actions so it's like while he isn't directly involved with getting those people killed like he's responsible in Mm -hmm. some ways Mm -hmm. and like so that's why he's so obsessed with this particular conversation because they say uh he'd kill us if he had the chance Mm -hmm. but how that's inflected is so important but he's like he's obsessed with it because he's like i can't be responsible for these people's deaths in the way i was before right because like his sort of motto is like i just take the recording what they do with it is their business mm-hmm. he even says that line what they do with the tapes their own business you know i can appreciate that mentality but like it's also weighing on him like he knows that that's sort of just a lie that he tells himself oh yeah 
And okay, I can't get this out of my head, so I just want to throw it out real fast. So this is on Roger Ebert's um, list of just great movies. And the first line of it is, Harry Call is bad at his job. And then he goes on to list like all the ways that he is bad. And I'm like, he kind of is. And it's like, I can't stop thinking about it. In what ways? Because he's he's a star in in the industry. They seem to love him. But like uh, he, he lets himself get recorded. Terry Garr's character uh, knows it's him because he sneaks his key in and then like opens it quickly trying to catch her. But she also like caught him watching her. Like if he's in surveillance, he's not great at it. Mm. I think I, I don't know. I, I, that's something I've been I've been trying to think about, too. I just wanted to get it out there that he's bad at his job. Yeah. So I don't know. She wanna, I don't have anything to say about it, but like it really threw me for a loop on my whole review of this. Yeah, because like everyone's always talking about how good he is at his job, and he's right. the best person on the East Coast. Right. Movie takes place in San Francisco. Both were. Oh no, no, no. We have an East and West Coast movie today. That's right. Yeah. But um, yeah. I mean, the movie—it's not dialogue heavy in the slightest. No. Uh, the way the the recording that we see at the beginning. It's sort How about of, that oneer opening oneer, by the way. Uh, the, just like the the close up that kind of finally tracks the couple in question. Great opening shot. Um, yeah, when I was watching, I was like, "What is making this not boring?" I was like, "This is a close up of." It starts as a crowd, like we're not yeah, focused on. It's any, like a zoom, very slow. I'm not sure if it's a zoom in or what. And like the sound design on it's sort of strange. Like it sounds like a crowd, basically. But right. It's like why is just this slow zoom with crowd noise this engrossing? Yeah. Like I've seen much more, you know, uh, uh, theoretically entertaining stuff, and for some reason this is the thing that's sucking me in. I don't know. There's a sensitivity to it of just the slow zoom and the sound design on it right. that I'm just like I'm watching what's happening. Yeah. But the conversation that the, that they have doesn't reveal too much. Like when I said that the movie's kind of impenetrable, it's like we don't really know what they're talking about for like 90% of the movie. Right. Uh but we hear this conversation over and over and over again. Uh-huh. And it it's almost like the way that you'd use a motif musically in, you know, the way John Williams does in Star Wars or, you know, the way composers do it in opera or something like that. It's like, it's almost like in the background, like we hear it at different points. Uh, we'll hear different people listening to it and right. that signifies something. Right. Like, well, and him just figuring out because it's recorded from three different places and there's a whole scene of him like using technology and audio engineering skills to like figure out what the full conversation is by like pulling up. Right. Pulling up he's different- like triangulating different like he's got like one person tailing them. Right. And then two people with um, like shotgun mics yeah that are like aimed at their at their mouths basically from ones on like a rooftop ones on from a window yeah and like between those three recordings he's able to like pinpoint because they're moving around this square right and so like you'll hear him say stuff like oh you know i got you know 40 percent or something like that and like oh well that's pretty good yeah uh and then yeah he goes back to his office his, his workspace and he syncs them all up and it's got those big chunky buttons oh god the old the audio. name of my new band by the way <laughs> the old audio gear like i love i love seeing all that ancient real to real mechanical manually shit. having to sync them up oh, it's uh, it's great. It's good and then he does and so then like 
it, he, then he has got to play with the levels for when it's coming out of the speakers and yep. you can hear the conversation. And yeah. You see his, his crazy EQ that he's built himself so he can like take out the like drumming that's going on and he can hear the line, like all that stuff. I'm just like, ah, I'm here for it. <laughs> I was going to say, how realistic does the, the audio engineering oh, in this movie there's look? There's no way you'd be able to like get those drums out. Uh, you could you could EQ to a certain extent, but I don't think you'd get it as intelligible as he got it. Okay. But, like, the fundamentals of it, like, his tools might work better than realistic tools, but, like, the process that he's going about things. Yeah, between the three of them, between those three recordings, you could probably get something pretty accurate. It wouldn't be as clean as it is here, but you mm-hmm. could probably get enough to to figure out what they're saying. Sure. So this movie gets your stamp of approval on the uh, the realism boat. Why a boat needs a stamp, I'm not sure. But. <laughs> a boat going through a sea of pennies. <laughs> uh, sure, why not? Yeah. Okay. Stamp. Stamp. I'll just say this, too. This is something I haven't mentioned yet. But, like, you know, the kids these days are always talking about how something's a mood. And, like, this movie is a mood. It is a mood. Oh. And it starts with that first shot, that like zoom in. It's like you're you're slowly zooming in and you hear weird things and you want to like figure out what those voices are and you assume it has something to do with what you're seeing, but you're like, it's a puzzle, you know? And so you're just sort of always wanting to piece it together mm-hmm. and the movie makes you wait for it. Well, because a lot of times with like a spy movie, it's like we might hear something at the beginning that makes no sense and then like as it goes along we're like oh they were speaking in code or this phrase means this or something and this doesn't quite do that it still plays like it should though like every time i hear the recording i feel like i should be getting something else out of it and uh-huh. i'm not and i f- feel like that's intentional that like i'm supposed to be really actively listening to it as if I will get something else out of it. Sure. And it's not really until we know more about the characters and their situation that we just kind of realize like, oh, they were just having a real conversation. Yeah. They weren't talking in code. They weren't like using lingo or they weren't like being covert about it. They were two people who were literally caught unawares and thought that they could be candid in their speech. Yeah. Should we, should we spoil it? I guess like... Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so so the conversation that ends up happening is it, and it's Cindy Williams of Laverne and Shirley fame. It is. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Cool. cool yeah. Cool, cool. They're like having this conversation of like, well, the, Gene Hackman was hired by the husband of Cindy Williams's character, played by Robert Duvall, mm-hmm. um, because he thinks that she's cheating on him, which she is with this dude. And so that's why Gene Hackman thinks he was hired for it, which probably was. But what he thinks he's he's recovered is that like, oh, there, there's the line that like, He'd kill us if he got the chance. Harry interprets that that like, oh, these people's lives are in danger. But actually, what they're doing is they're plotting to kill her husband. Right. So she'll get a control of the business, and then right. they'll be rid of him, and they can have their affair carry on. Um, and so it's the inflection of kill us if he got the chance. So that's what he's actually recorded. Like when I said that I'm inferring a lot of things or projecting a lot of things on Harry Call, we do that too. It's like Harrison Ford's character, we just assume once it kind of comes out, like once they're hearing the recordings and Robert Duell's like, you want this to be true. 
it's like we're supposed to like we don't know the relationship between Harrison Ford and Robert Duvall, but like the fact that Duvall said that suddenly creates a relationship. It's like, oh, this is probably the son of Robert Duvall. Oh, and because it's a controlling interest in the company, it's probably a battle, you know, uh, repo genetic opera style. <laughs> uh, God, this season <laughs> that. You know, maybe fifty percent of the shares were supposed to go to the wife in the event of, of Robert Duvall's death or something, or right. maybe fifty-one percent. And so, I think it says she gets a controlling interest. So, so yeah, she probably gets like fifty percent plus one. And Harrison Ford's probably the son who is like been diligently actually working at the company. Yeah. Where, but this isn't Harrison Ford's mother. This is a stepmother situation. Oh yeah, she's like his age. Yeah, 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 and. So he's spearheading this. That's why he wants the tape so badly. Right. Because if he can get, you know, Robert Duvall to potentially change his will to give controlling interest to him, Mm -hmm. then he can run the company. Or at the very least, fire that dude she's sleeping with. (laughs) Yeah. It's inferred. Like, none of this is ever said. That's just how I read the situation. Oh, yeah. It's all, I think it all kind of, maybe you're right. Maybe it's not explicit. It feels explicit by the end to me. Like we're talking about this, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I got all that. What about no, your corporate up. control? No Will your stock no now give you uh, no controlling interest? What's going to happen? But I, I don't. I don't think they ever say that. It's just based on the age and the relationship and the the way in which they speak to one another. Uh-huh. I'm just inferring all this about their relationship. Francis Ford Coppola in his day was super sensitive filmmaker and this is probably his most sensitive film i feel like the most is left unsaid in this movie i think out of any of his like you know quote like heyday movies Mm -hmm. it was godfather this movie godfather 2 yeah and then apocalypse now and apocalypse now the godfather 2 and this movie were both nominated for best picture for the same year of academy awards (laughs) so uh last week i called this movie the slender goddess between two giants Uh uh and i took that uh uh, i'm gonna let my um snooty freak flag fly a little bit okay um i stole that from robert schumann oh he described beethoven's fourth symphony which is a very good one but has nothing really memorable about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he described that as the slender goddess between two giants because the third is uh, uh, the Eroica, and then five is ba 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 bum. Okay. Um, and so people remember three and people remember five, and four is perfectly good and no one talks about it. And I kind of feel like this is like, you know, F- Francis Ford Coppola's fourth symphony in I a was, way. For a while, I was holding off on doing this movie because I was like, oh, it's on the AFI. It's oh, not. No. It's totally not. Yeah. And I'm like, WTF, ladies and gentlemen. Franny Forco fans know it, but like casual movie viewers do not know it. It must be in the like next 10, I feel. Like, I don't know. Like I said, this is a five star movie, probably in my top 10 movies for me. Like, I love, and, and I mean, I'm a little biased because it does like feature an audio engineer, but like. I get something new from it every time. I love the mood. The score. We haven't talked about the score. I love the, like, minor jazz mm-hmm. score. It's, uh... I do not buy Gene Hackman as a sax player, but... I like that his hobby is he puts on records and then, like, plays along with them. Which, oddly enough, like, makes sense. Because I hear about, like, classical fans, they'll conduct along. 
And of course, like, I'll sing along with whatever Lana Del Rey you'll put on. So, like, it kind of makes sense that, like, if you're a jazz fan that you play along yeah. with jazz. I like that hobby. I think it's cool. Yeah. There's also, like, okay, so we should talk about also there's a moment where he's finally, like, I can't just hand over these tapes and, like, separate myself from it. I have to, like, take some responsibility. And so he, in the conversation, they're like, we're going to do it this Sunday at this hotel in this room Mm -hmm. and so he goes to that hotel that day and he's like i I would like this room they're like it's booked and he's like can i get the room next to it and they're like sure so he sort of like bugs the next room um which is a fun scene because the toilet is very prominent (laughs) and uh he's like flushing while he's drilling Uh and i was like should he be making like farty noises too while he's doing it like just be like oh (laughs) shouldn't have had that enchilada (laughs) really play it up but when he finally hears that, like, oh, no, the shit's hitting the fan, he's like, he doesn't know what to do. He's, like, pacing back and forth. He goes out on the balcony. And then there's a moment that, like, I know it's coming, but it still shocks me. Do you know what I'm talking about? When he sees the, like, bloody handprint. Yeah, and, like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in... in- in my mind, my memory of this movie, this is only my second viewing. Okay. I own this movie, but it's only my second viewing. I, for some reason, thought that all that dream stuff was a lot earlier. Mm. So while I was watching, I was like, maybe I'm confusing it with a different movie. I was like, I don't think that I am, but, but, because, like, yeah, I thought it was, like, closer to when he had, like, the, the foggy dream sequence. Okay. And so, like, when it didn't happen around then, I was like, maybe I'm misremembering this movie. And then that happens, and I'm like, oh, that... The, the bloody hand thing, I'm like, that's not as shocking as I remember. I remember it being, like, really shocking. But then when he flushes the toilet... Oh, yeah. And it starts filling up with red, I'm like, nope, that's the worst kind of anxiety. Yeah. Like, toilet overflowing is a very unique sort of anxiety. Mm-hmm. We talked about it in After Hours, which <laughs> Terry Gar is also in. And then to have it be overflowing with blood. Well, I'm like, this is such a unique form of really palpable anxiety. And I like the ambiguity of that moment because it's hard to tell. Like, the first time I saw this movie, I thought that, like, the bloody handprint on the the glass. the glass was, like, a signifier that, like, okay, he's lost it and everything past here is just his delusions. But this time watching it, I was like, no, I think he actually saw it. And I think that, like, the flush of the toilet was actually, like, the blood of Robert Duvall's character because they killed him and then, like that's what's coming up yeah it's hard to say like we don't get any clarification on it like we get a little bit because it's like he was killed in that room and so like the bloody hand thing it sort of inferred that, that was real right but like yeah the blood out of the toilet like i don't we don't get any clarification on that yeah we don't know how much of what we're seeing is harry calls imagination of what's happening and how much is like supposed to be taken as like fact is like though this is just what actually happened yeah i love that ambiguity (laughs) i really do i like that they make him religious and they only infer that by the fact that he doesn't like it when people take the lord's name in vain right and it's really not a thing outside of that but like when it comes to light that that he might be bugged at his home because they they play the the jazz over the phone that he was just playing along. Oh, how to. creepy is that? Yeah, that's like that's almost like David Lynch like Lost Highway creepy. Yeah, and he like has that like meltdown essentially. I like it because it's like he he gets his little religious 
icon thingies mm-hmm. and like he like throws them away or breaks them but he leaves like the the uh mother mary the mother mary and then the fact that he left it there and then when he you know hadn't found the bug and had to go back to it and he decides to like smash it and see if it's bugged <laughs> tells you where he is mentally like he had drawn a line in the sand previously he's like i need to find this bug i'm not gonna harm the the icon of of mother mary mm-hmm. and but then he's like i haven't found this bug yet now i no longer care about this icon right the paranoia has consumed me and i no longer like the paranoia has has reached levels <laughs> That ha- have completely flooded the religious part Usurped of me. Usurped my religious yeah. Uh, feelings. Yeah. What a great ending shot, too. Like He's not getting his security deposit back. <laughs> not a penny. Uh, <laughs> not that a bucket bu- of pennies is going right into the landlord's pocket. <laughs> that landlord's going to be requesting buckets of pennies, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I love that last shot, too. Like The, the second time I watched this movie, I was like... Oh, there's there's more to this movie. I feel like like I don't remember it ending this way, and then like you just see the the camera kind of turn left and right, almost like it's shaking its head no mm, in a weird way, mm. uh, and then it's just like credits. Yep. You're like, oh, that's how it ends. Yeah, I, d- I didn't remember it ending at this point either. Honestly, like so this movie's like was it 113 minutes something like that. Yeah, I could have watched another 113 more. Yeah. Like. It yeah, it, it's a mood, but it's a mood that I was like perfectly in tune to. It's weird because like a lot of the movies for the podcast, like I like to you know keep my phone at a distance so that I'm not distracted by it. You know, laptop off, and I just kind of you know do an edible, wait for it to kick in, glass of wine, and like get in the zone. And this is one of those movies that like the movie like matched my mindset a little yeah. bit. Like it just like when it ended it felt like it had just begun a little bit that I was like, I like I could have watched it all over again, just a second time around. I wasn't tired of the characters. Like the rhythm of it was just matching my mental rhythm perfectly. And yeah, I just, I, I was just there for it the whole time. Yeah. It was strange. <laughs> it it casts a spell for sure. I don't know if we want to talk about this stuff, but you mentioned the paranoia that he feels at the end. And like, uh, this movie was released 74, Four. like, months or maybe even just weeks before Nixon resigned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, Watergate scandals from being bugged. Yeah. And so, like, that paranoia of just, like, being monitored and, like, what that could mean for you as a person is, like, in the air. Yeah, and I think this was at a time when maybe conspiracy theories were still on like the uprise uh-huh. and like bugging devices were still sort of new to people. Like for us, like, Oh, he puts a pen in someone's pocket. That's a, a, a listening device. Yeah. Like that doesn't seem radical, but in 74, it may have been mm-hmm. or bugging a phone even. Yeah. And man, I, I mean, not to go back to the ending, but like when he starts like taking apart his place, like, a, I was like, he must know how all this works because if he's bugging other people's places, he probably knows the ins and outs. But it's like, you know, he takes out or he starts taking the phone apart. And I'm yeah. like, that just looks like a lot of pieces. 
Uh, and he like unscrews like his ceiling lamp and like right. pulls it down. Like there's so many wires in there. Uh, and he's like ripping out drywall and pulling up uh, yeah. floorboards and shit. And his place had like classic 70s decor. That lime green linoleum in his kitchen. Oh boy. Mwah. I'd love to go back and like live in that. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what I mean by like, well, this is why like Roger Ebert's uh, thing haunts me because it's like he says he's bad at his job. And it's like, yeah. Maybe he's not bad at his job, but he's not good at uh, not being surveilled. Um, maybe that's a better way to put it. Because okay. it's like his apartment, you know, when he first comes home at the beginning of the movie, there's like, you know, a present waiting for him. And he calls his landlord up about it. There's that whole conversation like, how'd you get in? And she's like, oh, well, I have a key and da, 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 da. And like she knows how old he is. And he thought that was information that nobody knew. Yeah. And then like, you know, fast forward to the end. And it's like he's bugged. And like to a degree that they can play back something he just played. Yeah. Um, and he can't find it. Yeah. So it's like, maybe he's not bad at his job, but he, is, he certainly isn't aware of how easy it is to do the job he does. Yeah. To a degree, at least like he, yeah. he's, he's very good at it. I mean, cause he's, he's respected by other industry people too. Sure. But, there's also people like the at the the after industry party there's people who are like i'm who kind of say that like infer there's there's the one guy with the fat guy with the receding hairline (laughs) he's like you're the best guy on the west coast i'm the best guy on the east coast let's be partners yeah and honestly i was like he makes a good case well we said we should be partners harry i mean i mean i always said you're the best right but you and me together that'd be tops all i need is a quick look at some of your plans and devices you know just just to get an idea. I got all the manufacturing plans. We can make a fortune selling stuff to Uncle Sam, Harry. You know, there probably are people out there that are just as good as him. And if these listening devices can be tiny, then, yeah, who knows? But, yeah, I mean, paranoia pulses all through this movie. I love it, yeah. Because, uh, like, he's not even telling Terry Gar anything about himself. She doesn't know what he does for a living, he doesn't like questions being asked. And, like, you know, to a certain respect, I appreciate that. It's harder for people to imagine in a, in a day where we're constantly broadcasting our lives with our uh, uh, with willy-nilly's tweets and things like that. But um, Well, but it's the same principle, though. Like, he keeps that information close to his chest because he knows that things can be used against you in ways that you might not be able to control. Mm-hmm. And... It's the same thing with social media. Like you could put out a joke tweet or something and then like some you run for office five years from now and some conservative pundit digs up your tweet and is like, oh, Matt Fisher hates black people or something. (laughs) They're like, like, don't like chunky peanut butter, do you? (laughs) That'll never play in the Georgia peanut farms. Exactly. Yeah. Just turn that state blue, Ryan, and you're turning it back red with your uncaring peanut butter tweets. But yeah, it's the same stuff. It's like Harry is afraid of sharing because he knows he's paranoid that it will be used against him. Yeah. And so... I mean, I would probably be worried too because he might know something that he doesn't know that he knows. Yeah. Like he could have heard something that's important and not know that it's important. Yeah. But I mean, he says that he doesn't have a home phone. We find out that he does. Right. But he goes a great lengths to never use it. Like right. he always calls from a pay phone. Uh, and yeah, he, he takes his job very seriously. He he 
you know, the conversation, the titular conversation that he tapes, he has an agreement to drop it off with a specific person. And if that person isn't there, then he doesn't drop off the tapes. Right. So is there a reason? Because he's so protective of his home. Uh Uh-huh. But he invites all those people to his work for that after party. Well, and this, this is another example of, like, why he's maybe not great at worrying about being surveilled. Okay. Cause it's like, yeah, he's like nervous about his house, but then like get a drink or two in him with his other surveillance buddies who are obviously good at their jobs yeah. too. And suddenly he's like, Hey, you want to hear what I'm working on? Like, yeah. Yeah. He's kind of, I mean, part of it is that that uh, uh, traitorous John Cazale's there. It's like John uh-huh. Cazale used to work for Harry. They have one fight, and the next day he's working for the competition. Oh yeah, he doesn't waste any time. Which that also plays into like the paranoia because it's like oh. you know Harry Call makes all of his own equipment, so it's he like, doesn't what? want to work with receding hairline portly man <laughs> because he's like you're going to steal my ideas. He's, yeah, he's worried about that. And yeah. and Harry uh, or, or or John Cazale like could potentially know all these secrets and now he's working for the competition oh yeah so like it's just like that level of paranoia like that it just kind of like races through all these different scenes but yeah they go back to the uh the workspace and it's this big cavernous workspace and i was like i wonder if he feels comfortable with them there because it's so echoey that you it'd be harder to bug someone Oh, or sneak up on him. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it looks like a empty parking garage, but he, that he's like caged off a large area. Of. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, well, it's so echoey that like you'd have to put a, a mic on someone in order to get a good recording out of all this. Because mm-hmm. like he's so protective of his home, not as protective of his work, though. Yeah. Or his workspace. And so I, I was just wondering, like, is there something about his workspace that is, like, bug-proof or, or would be harder to tap? Let's go with that. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you're thinking like a sound engineer. It's all hardwood floors and big cavernous spaces, uh-huh. so. This will play into the next movie that we do, too. But, like, I think doing a movie about a sound engineer is so smart because it allows you so many opportunities to use sound in movies. Mm-hmm. Like we tend to let story and visuals guide movies and we, audio tends to be sort of like the, for lack of a better term, the redheaded stepchild of the situation and like kind of pushed to the side and is like an afterthought. Mm-hmm. But it's like when somebody's an audio engineer, that has to come to the forefront. And so I really like that that's the case in this. So he's that scene where he's like dialing in the conversation, you get to be in the place of the audio engineer you are an active listener and while there's visual things to look at you're not listening for plot Mm -hmm. you're listening for audio quality which is what an audio engineer does and so i like that this movie like puts you in that place yeah it's it's like a different dimension of where your attention's going Mm -hmm. like if a director is supposed to direct your attention you know we think that that's visual by and large but this movie shows that it like it can be oral as well. Like, yeah. w- like our ears are sort of like tuning in, trying to like hear through the static or or hear through the distortion or you know like when uh, when Harrison Ford and Robert Duvall have the tapes, we can hear through the door 
them talking about like, oh, it's always so sad just to think that he used to be someone's baby boy. It's like, we already know what's going on. Like these little verbal motifs yeah. from this conversation. And the red, red robin goes bob, bob, yeah. bobbing along. Uh, and well, yeah, because doesn't is it Terry Gar that sings that? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Where did you? What? Why are you singing that?" Like, because mm-hmm. it's like he heard it earlier in the day. There's that string of paranoia again. I also, I mean, okay, maybe this will be my last thing, but like, I also love that in Harrison Ford's office, there's a telescope, and he walks away for a minute, and it's like, oh, it's just another way to surveil people sure, from sure. a distance. Like, it's all throughout this movie. Yeah, there's just this constant stream of like of all the different ways that someone can be like listening in or, or spying on you. Yeah. Yeah. Top 10 movie for me. I love this movie. Okay. Well, good. Like, I I mean, I love this movie a lot. I don't know if it's a top, any significant number, but, uh, what about top 10 movies, uh, featuring audio engineers? Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I've seen 10, but definitely. (laughs) Cool. 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 Well, do you want to take a quick break, and then we can come back and talk about our other movie that features an audio engineer? I think that'd be good. Great. We don't want to have bad mic placement on a sound engineer episode. You never live it down. Eric Blood would be all over us. All right, I'm ready when you are. Oh, no, I'm recording. Oh, <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> Let's try not to sound too drunk on this one, shall uh, we? Okay. Why is that? We had a lot to drink <laughs> in that intermission. We did. That organ loop just kept going and going and going. I had planned on that drink that we had during the organ loop to be the drink we drank during this, but we ended up just uh, chatting about David Bowie and... Um, life. Life. And WAPs. And so that ended up being a whole drink, and now we've got another one in front of us, and we still have a movie to talk about. Yeah. A big one. This is one that you... When we started the podcast, I don't think you had seen this one. Matt. Well, okay, let's just say it, and then I'll say my thing. The second half of our audio engineer double feature is Brian De Palma's Blowout. So, I was thinking about this. Before this podcast started, I think I had seen of Brian De Palma's films, Carrie, The Untouchables, and... Scarface. Scarface, and there was one more in there. Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, yeah, that's it. And uh, since his big mainstream ones, yeah, starting the podcast, I've taken a deep dive, and that has included uh, Phantom of the Paradise episode two, mm-hmm. which was the last time we reviewed a Brian De Palma mm-hmm. movie, The Fury, The Fury, sorry, The Fury, um, with the suspense is killing us, guys. And uh, but I've done some homework on my own. I've watched Dress to Kill. I've watched Body Double. We watched, watched that one together. Snake Eyes. I've watched a bunch more. And including but not limited to Blowout. Today's movie Blowout, yeah. Yeah. Just what a blind spot for me. I never Which, realized. If I remember correctly, so correct me if I'm wrong, we did the Phantom of the Paradise and then you put Blowout in your Netflix queue. I did. And probably so, right after that. Yeah. yeah. So like 
within a couple weeks of Phantom of the Paradise, you watched Blowout. Yeah, it wasn't. It must not have been too long afterwards. And uh, it's real good. So <laughs> both movies that we reviewed today, I own, but I've only seen once prior. You're kidding? Yeah, in in both situations. Okay, okay. How'd um, you feel about this movie? Oh, still good. Yeah. Still totally awesome. Yeah, I'd, I'd bump it up to great. With the conversation, I said that it was uh, uh, impenetrable a mm-hmm. little bit. For Brian De Palma, totally penetrable. He, he, he <laughs> loves penetration. <laughs> Just getting that, that three, four fingers of penetration. He's not enjoying himself unless you're penetrating the movie. <laughs> exactly. And then he can really get off. So... Just right off the bat, we got that horror movie sequence. Ah! Another okay, so this is the second movie. I love that these movies both do this. Uh, starts off with a wonder. It's sort of sly because it's like it's obviously lampooning the slasher movies of the day, uh-huh. but it's kind of doing it better than all the slasher movies of oh, the day. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But it doesn't look like it's doing it better. It's just. Is. actually doing it yeah, better uh-huh. even though it's supposed to be sort of a gag a little bit it's like oh if you actually watch it it's really well done oh yeah uh and then Going from window to window yeah and, like, uh, everybody in that uh in that sorority has their eyes closed though <laughs> i know like, no one's paying attention to anything like the way that it leads up to like the shower scene uh-huh. with like the the horrible scream ah! kill it Real good. <laughs> and I love the real shop talk. Look, Jack, I didn't hire that girl for her scream. I hired that girl for her tits. I mean, this is a meta movie. Like, uh, of course. What, what, this, like, this is a movie about making movies, but like the way that they portray it, it's, it's super meta. Because it's like, they're like, oh... The, the scream is so terrible, but they say, like, oh, well, maybe all the other sound is, is too high or something. And then you show them, like, bringing the levels down uh-huh. on the heartbeat and, like, different parts of the score. The and, yeah. And so then it's isolated to just the scream, and it still just sounds like... Kill it. There's something about the visual of them bringing down the levels on all those things, and you see... Like the the masking tape that and it has like written like heartbeat and like wind. Yep. And how it was done. Yeah. And like there's something about the visual combined with like the audio of those levels dropping that you're like, ah, that's movie magic. Mm -hmm. I didn't even notice the heartbeat or I didn't even notice the wind until you take it away. Yeah, yeah. But it adds to that scene that we just watched. Like Mm -hmm. it gives you all that like uh, tension that like builds to that shower scene. And if you don't have that scream, none of that matters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just deflates the whole thing. Mm. Adam Pranica from uh, the Greatest Generation podcast talks about how he loves, well, he says it's not about uh, TV shows, but he says about movies too. He's like, I love a movie that teaches you how to watch it. Mm. And boom, this movie's doing that right away. It's showing you pay attention to how sound works in this movie because it's going to make a difference. And, uh, yeah, it shows you right off the bat. It's like, this is what you need to be paying attention to. So before we go too far, gotta ask, gotta ask, John Travolta, in this movie, hit it or quit it? I would totally hit it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Something, something, I'm not gonna 
say I'm a John Travolta man by any means, but there is something about his cool demeanor, like when he's getting grilled by the cops okay. after the after the crash happens and stuff, like, he, and he's got that tight black shirt on, and he's like, man, got, I did my thing, I didn't like, I don't know, it's like he's got a good attitude, he was, he's got some like dreamy eyes, I'm into it. Okay. You. Okay. Yeah, I think I would. I don't know if it's necessarily because of this movie or if it's just my memories of him dancing Saturday Night Fever that, you know, uh, unnaturally attracted to dancers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's blinding my judgment a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think I would, despite the chin butt, which I'm usually not for. Yeah. Um, Gene Hackman had a chin butt too, by the way. Oh, did he? It wasn't nearly as pronounced not as, as John pronounced, Travolta's. No, yeah. You could lose your wallet in there. <laughs> yeah. You know how you can tell this movie's going to be fun? How's the that? opening credits, like with the, with the the VU meter or whatever oh, it is, yeah. mm-hmm. and I'm just like, this movie's fun. Like, I don't even need to see the rest of the movie. Just this touch of like the VU meter, like wiping the names yeah. onto the screen. I'm like, this is a fun movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Like, I'm sold. Show me the rest. <sighs> we didn't mention this on the conversation, but uh, this movie is definitely inspired by the Antonioni film Blow out yes um and you were right last week when you blow said, up damn it this is blow out god i'll never get it right yeah no blow one will. up but uh the conversation was also inspired a little bit by the antonioni movie right so the antonioni movie which is very good if you haven't seen it yes but that's about a photographer recommended you know hitchcock saw that movie and he kind of got like a little uh uh uh, jealous nervous in a little bit he's like oh this is what thrillers are gonna be moving forward he's like the thrillers that i've made that's old hat now. put him in the trash and i think brian de palma kind of said out he's like no we're gonna do both yeah like we're gonna mix the two and uh that's gonna be thrillers moving forward yeah i love this movie. i love that like this movie and the conversation are similar in a lot of ways but also starkly different it's hard to say like while that one i can appreciate very intellectually and like one's uh, impenetrable one's just <laughs> yeah. spreading its legs open this, for you this one is a very like character plot driven story but they they hit a lot of the same beats it's sort of like looking at a sculpture from a different angle you know like it's mm. the same th- we're looking at the same thing it's just like you get a different reveal when you walk, you know, 90 degrees over here. Okay. So this one, it's like, it's very emotional. It's very character driven. And I love the characters in these, in this movie. The Uh, conversation was looking at it from the West and this is looking at it from the East. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. You're going to get two different views on, or maybe like the lighting's changed on the statue too. Like, I don't know. There's lots of different ways to think about this, but like, What's Nancy Allen uh, plays the lady character, the prostitute. Yeah. Don't necessarily ever think of her as a good actress. I think she's great in this movie. Oh yeah. Like she's got a full fledged character. You didn't uh, think she was good in dress to kill. She's fine. You didn't think she was good in Carrie. You didn't think she was good in RoboCop. She's good in this movie, okay. is what I'm saying. Okay. I like the character. I like uh, the, because she wants to be a makeup artist. Sure. Like, and makeup artist works really well with a sound engineer who's working in movies. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, it, it goes hand in hand. The script of this movie was one thing wa- watching this one was like, oh, I appreciate the script. 
so much. How so? Well, like uh, the first scene after the scream, and he's like, you need to build a better sound library, basically, is what they're saying. Like, you can't keep using that Hollywood Edge uh, hawk, hawk sound. scream anymore. Yeah. You need to go get your own hawk sound. So it shows him, like, labeling tape reels of, mm-hmm. of different things while a newscast is playing saying, like, Liberty Bell celebration is coming up. And sure. you're just like, uh, he's laying the foundation for that to come up later. And right. it's, like, it's all in, like you know, Brian De Palma split screen. So you're just like, I love it. Like we get, we're just getting all the information at once. Yep. As we all know, Liberty Day is one of the most eagerly awaited of all Philadelphia celebrations. But this year, it's going to be extra special. It is exactly 100 years since the Liberty Bell was last rung. And to honor this centennial, there will be a parade on Saturday down Market Street. It will end up at Penn's Landing where there will be a spectacular display of fireworks. Knowing what's coming up in the movie, I see it all laid out in like the first 10 minutes the table setting is just mm, chef's kiss it's so good (laughs) when i know knowing what's coming up it's all there yeah all laid out it's perfect yeah because uh it's like doing the double focus like is really a nice way to keep your attention like your eyes are looking all over the screen then like you're going from the newscast to like him like hanging up different segments of of tape mm-hmm. essentially and then he's like you know categorizing and moving it's like i like to think that when you use a hawk sound in uh our podcast that it's because you went out and uh actually recorded a hawk and that it's not the hollywood edge hawk you know track four or whatever <laughs> um that you you went out and just waited in the wilderness for a hawk to screech and you're like that's the one for the podcast what's interesting is that the one i do use on this podcast is the one that i've recorded myself it just sounds exactly <laughs> like the hollywood edge one okay so yeah that is my original recorded hawk sound <laughs> so he goes out like his, the boss of this uh thing is like you the gotta director go, the director the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's like, you got, you got to go out and you got to get your own sounds. So he goes out and he's like standing on a bridge and he's recording some wind, some mm-hmm. good wind. He like sort of records a couple talking to each other, which, um, you know, is flashbacks to the conversation. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he's using a shotgun mic. So it's very directional. So what he points it at is what it picks up. So he gets like the couple turns. He gets like a frog. He gets an owl. And then he hears like a weird, like sort of click whir sound. And he turns it towards that. And then that's when he sees a fucking car accident. Jesus Christ. And the movie's over. (laughs) And that's how it ends. (laughs) It's a 15-minute short film. No, so he sees a car accident. Car drives off a bridge into a ravine. Yeah. Um, Water. Yeah, he he dives in to help however he can, and we see someone underneath the bridge kind of crawl out from under and, like, get up on the road and and run away. (laughs) Honestly, like, as beautiful as the underwater sequence looked, there's no way he hit that car window hard enough with that rock. A, you're underwater, like, what's your lung capacity really like? But it's like the slowness uh, at which he's like hitting uh, the window. I was like, that would never work. 
But it does, and it's fine because we got to keep the movie going. I also have problems later when uh, Nancy Allen hits Dennis Franz with a whiskey bottle. <laughs> oh, but she just, just sort of like flicks her wrists with it, and yeah, it crashes, she, and it knocks she hits him, out. him like three inches away huh. from his head, and it totally shatters. Whatever, I'm into it. I don't care. But he 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 gets Nancy Allen out of the car. She's in the car. He pulls her out legs first. I don't know why she went. She decided on that direction. Maybe it's just so her skirt would flap and you could see her undies. <laughs> but uh. Saves her, which is good. It's how John Travolta thinks children are born. <laughs> legs first. You pull out the legs because you can like shake it, and if they have amniotic fluid in their lungs, you can toss them around a little bit, face them towards xenon, <laughs> and. Uh... <laughs> but oh, and then we didn't mention this. So like. Early, when I was mentioning earlier, like the split uh, screen beginning when they're doing when he's doing the hang up and it's the thing, they're also talking about uh, presidential election stuff going on. Yeah. So there's McBrien who's running against president. Yeah. <laughs> Which, whatever, whatever. Uh, and it turns out McBrien was the guy in the car. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Which honestly, I feel like it's too big of a scandal for this movie. <laughs> Like, what, oh, sure. Like, I feel like it should be, like, governor of Pennsylvania or something like that. But, you know, this just could be old, like, values at hand here. But it's like, I feel like if I was a major party's candidate for president, I probably wouldn't be in any car, regardless of how safe or secure I thought it was, with a prostitute. Yeah, it's bad news. But, you know, this is a, a pre-Gary Hart era, so maybe people just didn't think of those terms. Yeah, yeah. This was still when you could have dalliances, and uh, it wouldn't really shake the boat that much. Yeah, so, well, I mean, they I guess they could, because that was the whole thing, is he was going to get caught in a car with a prostitute, and that was going to ruin his, his chances at the election. Right. But, yeah, it was just like, boy... You know, as as much as I, I'm pro-prostitute, I'd probably hang it up for at least election season. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a risk. Especially when you're running against president. <laughs> whoever that is. So it's been a while since I'd watched this movie. I think I last saw it in, like, 2013, maybe okay. late 2012. Okay. The music, the, the Pino DiNaggio score... Uh-huh. I like saying the the name Pinot Dinaggio because it sounds like a fancy wine. <laughs> <laughs> the score in the hospital when he like goes to visit Nancy Allen okay. is used in Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. Oh, how about that? Yeah, and uh, Death Proof I've I watch like probably once a year, mm-hmm. and you're uh, watching it right now. <laughs> yeah, you know I'm kind of bored by recording this <laughs> podcast, so I thought I'd put on a movie while we finish this out. <laughs> In the, the first half of the movie, Jungle Julie is, like, texting some unseen man. Okay. And anytime she's texting her, the Pino DiNaggio score is what's playing. Oh, okay. This uh, links back to last week's episode because you mentioned uh, Tarantino's top 11 movies or whatever, and uh, Unfaithful Yours is on that. Uh, Blow Up is also on this. Blow Out is also on that list. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, Tarantino is a, a diehard DDP fan. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. One of... De Palma's movies would have to be on yeah. his his top this list. This is the one he has on there. Okay. So. I mean, honestly, this is probably De Palma's most 
like 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 if we're in the the Venn diagram of tasteful and quality, mm-hmm. I think this one has to be the best because like Body Double and Dress to Kill, I think, are just as good as this one. But are not nearly as tasteful. I think it has to do with the emotional weight of it. I think I prefer Dress to Kill just as a movie. But I'm not emotionally invested in the characters like I am in these characters mm-hmm. in this movie. Like, I feel for Nancy Allen's character because, like, she wants to be a makeup artist. But she's also a prostitute on the side. And, and you uh, love a hooker with a heart of gold? Well, like... She, she's really trying to do her thing and then she gets caught up in the scandal and she gets saved and they're like here's a bunch of money you have to get out you know go lay low for a while and like that's I feel for her but like and then, and then like you know John Travolta's character comes in and is like no I have proof that this was done by nefarious forces and mm-hmm. like we have to prove this like she's in a tight spot yeah. like I feel for her in that like I don't know what I would do in that situation. Cause it's like, do I want, cause, and, and she says it a lot of times she's like, I need to think about it. I don't know. Like a, I could just take this money and run and be fine. B there's this cute guy being like, this is the right thing to do. And I want you to help me with it. <laughs> Why? I'm stuck. Money and sex. If there's two things that pull Ryan from either end, <laughs> Oh, please. Like, you wouldn't be yeah, torn. I know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Like, I don't know. I'm I just... not better than you. <laughs> and I feel for John Travolta's character, like, too. He's, like, he's really trying. He's, like, I know what I'm doing. I'm a sound guy. I think he even says that line. I think he says, like, I'm a sound man. <laughs> Look, I know what an echo sounds like. I'm a sound man. And uh, the bang was before the blowout. Like, I'm not stupid. I know what I'm talking about. So I asked this during the conversation. I got to ask it here, of course. How realistic do you think his process is in being a, a sound de- designer, sound engineer? I think I buy it a little more here. Yeah. I think, again, your isolation is going to be an issue with the way that it's presented in the movie where he's like turning. Like, I love the scene where he's got the pencil. And he's using that as a shotgun mic. Sure. And, so we're seeing and he's it. recreating the yeah, scene. But we're seeing it from his perspective because he's got the pencil slash microphone. And when that scene was going on, what we're hearing wouldn't necessarily be what you're hearing in that situation. But it works. And I buy it. Uh, but I mean, uh, how about like earlier during like the split screen with the, the Liberty Bell news stuff when he's like cutting up tape and labeling it like isn't that just a sort of analog method of what you do when you're editing this podcast? Sort of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. He's just using tape instead of digital audio clips. Right. Cause like, you know, uh, he, he's, you know, if, if, if the roles were reversed and, and you were doing this, you'd be like, uh, uh, you know, Christmas drop or something <laughs> or, uh, uh-huh. Schlocktober. Uh, I've got, you could read them right there. I've got them. They're up <laughs> on my computer. So yeah. So one thing that's like very foreign to me, well, a, the tape part of it, but the, uh, when he links it up with the film. Oh, sure, it, sure. Sure. Like that was a really engrossing scene for me because it actually reminded me a lot of the conversation scene where he's like just listening and like, you know, turning the knobs this time he's just listening and trying to link it up 
with visuals. Right. So uh, Dennis Franz is sort of like a middleman between like the, the, the political campaign and like... Like a caricature of a scummy man. Oh, my God. It's just... So... It's a little far. Oh but. my god! Like they, yeah, they put him in a wife beater and they give him like the thickest accent. He's got a bottle of J and B scotch, and like. he's just like the lowest of low lives. He's heard all about our fine divorce work, and he offers me six grand. Six? You told me three. Yeah, well, uh, three before and and three after. So when were you gonna tell me about the three after? After I collected it, what do you think? This movie has like all like the recurring Brian De Palma players here. Oh yeah, it's like Dennis Franz is in a handful of movies. John Lithgow's in a bunch of his movies. John Travolta was you know in Carrie. Nancy like, Allen and Nancy Allen was in Carrie in this in Dress to Kill. Like this has like all the the big name De Palma players. Mm-hmm. Pino Donaggio, of course, did all or a bunch of his scores like yeah it's like he's 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 working with a crew that knows his style at this yeah. point yeah 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 but yeah i mean but dennis franz come on it's just like hey you know what am i doing here so i mean it's weird to think that dennis franz's butt was once newsworthy like i don't know oh, that's right you which season or which episode of nypd blue it was on but like i it was it was talk of the town I remember as a child. Me too. But yeah, so... And oddly, I wanted to see it. <laughs> now I'm like, you can keep uh, yeah. that. <laughs> Put it away. <laughs> I mean, John Lithgow, who is a great... Oh yeah, John, we haven't talked about him yet. John Lithgow is a great villain, but I, my first exposure to John Lithgow was Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> so I have sort of a problem. Like, there, there's a barrier to me thinking that he's truly villainous oh God, same. even though he's a really good villain oh same mine was harry and the hendersons and oh. then i watched cliffhanger and i'm like i don't buy this at all yeah exactly it's like his scheme as a villain I'm like oh that pretty makes good. sense pretty good like he's gonna kill all these prostitutes to make it look like there's a serial killer on the loose. The Liberty Bell Strangler. So that when he kills Nancy Allen, she's just one of many and not a target associated with this presidential campaign. Right. I'm like, that's really smart, John Lithgow. But it's also like he's sort of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's um, rogue. He's alone. He's rogue. Yeah. That's, yeah, precisely. Like, he's in it because he wants to murder. <laughs> and the campaign who hired him and originally was like, like no, 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 we didn't want this. I think he even says, he's like, Burke, I don't know you. I've never seen you. Don't ever call me again. Like, great villain, but I just see him as a comic actor. Yeah. And I see him as a lovable guy trying to push away a large Bigfoot creature. Get out of here! Can't you see we don't want you anymore? This sort of lays out the premise a lot more clearly than, say, the conversation does. Like, conversation, I don't think I'm ever quite sure of the premise until we're near the end. Right. Whereas here, I'm like, we got a political campaign, we got a potential assassination, we got a hooker who knows everything, and we got the witness. I'm like, this is a movie. Oh, yeah, there's no ambiguity. Yeah. I'm like, this this is a movie Mm -hmm. here, folks. This is what I'm buying tickets for. Oh, yeah. 
there is a little downtime, I guess, between like the hospital and when Johnny T is flipping together the the footage from Dennis Franz's photog outing. Okay, I liked all that. Well, no, once John Travolta is like, oh, here's here's the footage, and like he cuts out the magazine pictures, and then he goes back to the studio that he works for to like the animation department, mm-hmm. and like puts that all in so that it like creates a creates film. a movie and then he's watching it and then like listening to the sound and he tries to sync it up and, like based on like just sight and sound I'm like oh, oh my god mm-hmm. like when I think of syncing things I was like oh you just sync up the visuals with the audio it's easy I'm like oh no there might not be a clear start and stop to either one of those things oh, yeah and I love watching because I've always thought about this, like especially with older, because I know how they do it nowadays with digital. Mm-hmm. But like back in the day, I'm like, how did they do it? And I love that it's like it's just mechanical. He just listened, yeah, we, and we, watched. We, he's got like one reel that's like audio magnetic tape, and then he's got the like film tape, and um, he's playing one. And then like once you link them up, he just like slides a little uh, cog over, and then they're like spinning together and i'm like it's mechanical yeah that makes so much sense so it it's you know while this movie is a thriller it's also like this is how you make movies yeah and so there's there's a meta-ness to this and i like it because it's brian de palma kind of giving kudos to the unsung heroes of movie making Mm -hmm. i think here he's showing like sound engineers play a very important part in making movies. Thank you. And so do editors and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not explicitly saying like, oh, these people are important. We should all appreciate them. But it's like, without them, we wouldn't have what we consider to be feature films by today's standards. Mm-hmm. We'd have crummy screams and showers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, you got to get people who care about the sound design and like syncing up these things and like those and make are the people, people like yeah these are the people that make the movies happen yeah you need somebody who like cares enough to make somebody like she she talks about that nancy ellen's character is like every face needs makeup but it shouldn't look like makeup oh i should you see i've worked on this face and i've hidden everything so you don't see the makeup you got makeup on i do i don't believe it I don't believe it. Absolutely. You see, this took me two hours, and this is the no makeup look. Really? That's what makeup people do for movies. Like, yeah, Dick Smith is in the audience. He's like, damn right it took you <laughs> two hours. He stood up and cheered when that happened, when he saw this movie. He was like, fuck yes. <laughs> Dick Smith, underappreciated. <laughs> if this podcast is about nothing else, it's about appreciating <laughs> Dick Smith. Look him up, folks. We've talked about him before. <laughs> I think this is probably Brian De Palma's best use of the double focus. He uses it a lot. He uses it a lot, but like when when he's got that that what did you call it a shotgun mic? Yeah, mm-hmm. the pencil. Yeah, or, or when he's using it as the pencil as the shotgun or the actual shotgun. The mic? actual shotgun. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's like we we hear the owl, we hear the frog, we hear the the those people's conversation. Like, that's all really good. Like, that makes for just, like, really visually interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. But then when he's sort of imagining it in his head, like the the uh, gun blast 
and like the tire popping and like you have the 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 double focus of his face listening versus like the the car wheel turning and right. being shot out I'm like this is so good looking yeah it looks great this is like absolutely like one of the best uses of of double focus ever 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 and i'm just going to say really well sound mixed because like i listened to it in headphones and like you know moments when like he hears a sound on the right channel he moves the pencil to the right mm. and then that becomes like center channel and okay. it's just like that all that stuff I'm just like ah oh, they paid attention they know what they were doing <laughs> uh-huh. like, that's good stuff especially for was 81 like i don't think there was uh, I think Ben Burt is the first person to ever get a sound designer credit, and that was Star Wars 77, which is oh. four years before this movie. So it's like, yeah, we're ju- they were just starting to pay attention to the idea that, like, oh, sound is important, you know? I mean, not to get off topic, but, like, Star Wars, it is, a, a, like, a big deal because there's so many sound effects. Oh, yeah. And, like if you took out what r2d2 sounded like that takes out part of the fabric of star wars right yeah or even just like the lasers or oh yeah totally you know stuff like that like he went and recorded that and uh that's what he's bringing like focus to in this movie yeah we we don't think about it because it's largely invisible and when it's done right it doesn't draw attention to itself so it, it it is nice to have movies that celebrate these sort of unsung heroes of movie making yeah Otherwise, you'd just be watching silent movies still, people. <laughs> How fun would that be? But as the movie progresses, you know, we end up at, like, the Liberty Day parade with this bell made of pennies. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you brought back that plant, the uh, <laughs> seed that I planted back in the early part of this movie. <laughs> podcast well, whatever i don't you know, even know what i'm talking about anymore if, there, if there's anything i know that you love it's seed mm-hmm. so. ah thank you uh yeah and wait well i don't want to skip over real fast like there's a part where john lithgow is like uh when when we find out that he's a, a murdering psychopath there's a huge following sequence where he's following a woman that's uh vertigo 100 percent. sure sure um and you know we look Brian De Palma is obviously like following in Hitchcock's footsteps. Mm-hmm. Who's following in De Palma's footsteps? Quentin Tarantino. Okay, like not in like uh, uh, the the thriller vein, but in like the overly stylish sort of vein. And Quentin Tarantino makes references to the things that he loves in the same way that Brian De Palma does. I mean, Tarantino's more explicit, but yeah, Tarantino's definitely like uh uh at the altar of de palma who's next who's who's, who's picking up from de pa- from uh, a bunch Tarantino. of shitty directors <laughs> i mean it is sort of true i i was thinking about this while watching blowout over the weekend is that there's a lot of filmmakers that came out of this movement because it's like brian de palma was friends and colleagues with Steven Spielberg, with Martin Scorsese, with Francis Ford Coppola. Right, yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I always like hearing is that that uh, for Star Wars, you know, George Lucas, during the, the opening, like, prologue, he had Brian De Palma, like, proofread it, and one of the things was like, 
you know, George Lucas wrote, you know, war rages throughout the galaxy or something, and Brian De Palma was like, you're having this play over, like, a background of stars and, like, the, and, and things? He's, he's like, yeah. He goes, okay, you can take out the throughout the galaxy part because they can see the stars. They know where the war is raging. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's really smart. Yeah. Like, that's how Brian De Palma thinks. He's like, oh, we don't need to add in the throughout the galaxy. We know where the war is taking place. We can place. see the galaxy. But, like, out of all those filmmakers that came out of, like, you know, Friedkin and Bogdanovich as well, out of all those filmmakers that came out, I kind of feel like Brian De Palma gets the shaft a little bit. And I think it's because he's on the sleazier side. But, I mean, you know... uh, What's his face? Noah Baumbach made that whole documentary about right. oh, Brian De Palma. It was good. I, I watched it. Uh, yeah, it was okay. So it's not like he doesn't have his fans, but I don't think anyone's emulating his style outside of Quentin Tarantino. I think it's interesting. Earlier, you said that like this is sort of his classiest movie or one of his classier joints. Where classy and uh, uh, quality sort of meet, right? Because like, he, he's got sleazier movies that I think are as good as this. Sure. But, like, this one, whenever it's showing tits, it's either in a movie, like, within a movie, or it's when it's um, lurid details of a scandal, like a political scandal. So yeah. that's, when, that's the other time we see boobs is when uh, Nancy Allen is uh, caught yeah. in bed with the, with the politician. So it's like... He's sort of saying, yeah, I'm going to show these things in my movies, but it's like it's no worse than, say, like, like don't pretend that this shit doesn't happen, you know? Yeah. Like, Well, I, I think it speaks to how, like, especially American audience goers view sex versus violence. Like, Martin Scorsese makes very violent movies, and we celebrate them. Like, we think that Goodfellas should have beat out Dances with Wolves for the Oscar that year and things like that. But it's like the moment you kind of make it sleazy, suddenly that makes it devoid of any real quality. Yeah. Like in the eyes of, you know, puritanical critics, of course. Although I will always, like, uh, we were off pot, I think, but uh, when Bettina was on for Near Dark, Mm -hmm. we were talking about Brian De Palma. And I was like, you know, you never hear about, like, Brian De Palma sexist attitude or or any sort of unsavory stories about him and Bettina goes do we need him <laughs> it's like aren't they all on camera already <laughs> good point yeah I was like well it's hard to argue with that one but uh there's something about like the sleaze of Brian De Palma that I think that a lot of critics are or, or you know sort of the the gatekeepers don't approve of and it's funny because uh roger ebert and pauline kale two people who are considered american movie critic titans were like this movie's great mm-hmm. and they both of them love brian de palma in general i think so well, i mean they're both like th- those two critics i think appreciate brian de palma's style and also like i'm and and this just could be me speaking from a a, a white male place but like objectification to me isn't necessarily a problem it's when that's what your movie rides on like if that's all your movie has to offer 
That's the problem. Right. And Brian De Palma movies are fun and thrilling, and they have sex on top of it. I mean, do we need Angie Dickinson washing her cooch at the beginning of Dress to Kill? That's a stunt cooch. <laughs> stunt cooch. Name my next band, by the way. <laughs> I thought uh, it was... Uh, clunk nuggets chunky buttons yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but you know and i think we feel the same way about like bad gay movies where it's like we're so eager to see ourselves on on cinema and we kind of want that level of objectification too like we want to see sexy dudes like doing fun things on film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like knife plus hard it's like a serial killer stalking a gay porn set like this is gonna be terrible mm-hmm. and then you watch it and it's actually very good knife plus heart isn't that far removed from a brian de palma movie no yeah i'm with you and it's like you know, when we talked to, to uh, when we did our bad gay movie season and we do- talked to, like, you know, Kid Ridge and things like that, it's like, what were his influences for pornography, a thriller? He said Body Double yeah. and Lost Highway. And it's like Lost Highway also, like, very objectifying in certain scenes. Like, Patricia Arquette's, like, fully nude oh, yeah. in that movie. And even when she's not fully nude, like, she's gazed upon. Like, the male gaze is hard in that movie. Yeah, I think I think it's a weird and I think it's specifically American thing to discredit a movie because there's sex in it or nudity. Like when I was in school in college, I had a friend who was like, if you ever want to sound smart, just say, oh, it all goes back to our puritanical roots. But it's like it's kind of the truth sometimes where you're just like oh, why can't we have sex in our movies? Or why do people downplay or critique harder movies that have sex in them? It all goes back to our puritanical roots because in America, that's a problem. Like, for some reason, we love violence. Violence is fine. But then somehow when you add sex in, like, that's suddenly a problem. And then... Right. And it sucks because, like, yeah, between all those filmmakers that you just mentioned, Coppola... Scorsese, Spielberg. They've all made very violent movies. Sure. But have they made overtly sexual movies? Not really. Not really, yeah. And then De Palma's the one who did, and he's the one who gets sort of like shunted to the corner. Yeah. So it's sad to me, because it's like, they're just as good. And I'll go, I'll say it again, at the risk of repeating myself, but it's like, you know, objectification in movies can be okay, as long as that's not what the movie's writing on. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to keep referencing different Brian De Palma movies, but it's like, you know, Dress to Kill, it requires Angie Dickinson and Nancy Allen to be sexy. Yeah. Like, you couldn't have non-sexy people in those roles. But their characters are more than just how sexy they are. And that's the important part. Same with Knife Plus Heart or any bad gay movie that we watch. It's like... it. You know, objectification only takes you so far in a movie. Like, you have to have a real movie underneath it to make it something that that you'll celebrate. And I think Brian De Palma does that, at least for me. Like, I mean, we both saw Altitude Falling, and the Paul Bright dick shot added nothing (laughs) to that bullshit of movie. Whereas, like, when we talk about a socket, like, the nudity... 
just elevates it. It's on top of the fact that it's like, oh, we're talking about addiction and how drugs make you do all this. And well, like, I, f- I feel like we might be getting off on a tangent here, but it's like as sexuality is like an everyday part of the average adult's life, it shouldn't be not represented in our movies. Yeah. Like if we on a daily basis want to see sexy things, then you can have sexy things in your movies. Yeah. It's just, if that's all your movie is, then it's a pretty faulty movie. You gotta have the sexiness with top-notch filmmaking on top of it. Yeah. Well, and if, like, movies are our dreams, like, you know, Hollywood's the dream machine, they say. Mm-hmm. Um, Boy, Brian Paul's bringing heady thoughts Let's just do us. it. I don't care. <laughs> to deny sexy thoughts, any gay person will tell you, <laughs> that's oh, yeah. gonna be bad yeah it's gonna be a problem create problems (laughs) somewhere down the pipeline pop out somewhere else so it's like just acknowledge them like like embrace the fact that this person is making an overtly sexual movie Mm -hmm. and say like yep that's part of the human experience yeah and do i care for it yes or no doesn't matter like let it exist and say like this movie is just as deserving to have been made as Boyhood. I don't know. That's a <laughs> weird poll, but whatever. I, I think it's solid, though, <laughs> I, because that movie seems to be devoid of, you know, sexuality yeah. and, to a certain extent. So, you know, blowout, <laughs> which is mostly void of sexuality in general. But and, and even when there is sexuality, it's sort of like a little funny, like when it's in like the opening slasher thing or it's supposed to be totally taboo like when we're seeing like the titty shots of like the photographs or like the prostitute yeah yeah and uh it's like we we only allow sexuality if it's either gonna be totally objectified a la a slasher or if it's supposed to be scandalous in the way of the presidential scandal but right yeah i mean brian de palma luckily just never really felt it necessary to adhere to uh, uh, our puritanical roots. There you go. Now you sound like an intellectual. <laughs> um, my first and only time. <laughs> but yeah, okay, so now we can go back. So, I mean, there, there's just so the many... ending, we haven't done the ending. Well, I mean, oh my God, the ending. What well, an ending. I was going to say when uh, John Lithgow kills that prostitute at the train station... Uh huh. Yeah. And like the way that it's like you just see her feet and like the camera pans out. Mwah! I'm like, that is a beautiful shot. Yeah. That is top notch filmmaking. <sighs> lots of uh, lots of uh, lighting that we like in this movie. And in that one in Hard particular. reds all over the place. I really. I was like, oh, I'm getting a boner for this lighting. <laughs> like, I know it's like dated and nobody does this anymore, but I'm like, I'm all about it. I mean, honestly, like the hard red lighting that they had in this, I was like, this kind of reminds me of Knife Plus Heart. Yeah. Like the the crazy, unrealistic lighting. I was like, I, I, this is just what I want. I know. I, I don't want to watch Verite films, at least not right now. Like, I want to watch super stylish movies about things that could never possibly happen with people that couldn't possibly exist. Yeah. I was I was I was crushing real hardcore on the lighting. Yeah, it's just like De Palma movies are capital M movies. Like they're not reality. They're not reflections of our everyday lives. Oh, yeah, so yeah, so fast forward to the end. Uh I was like is he ever going to do some slow-mo in this movie or what the fuck? Like we've done it. We've seen enough of his like 
uh, other signatures. And then it happens. I forgot. It happens at the end when like, so he like wires up uh, Nancy Allen to meet John Lithgow. Yeah. And he, he takes her to this place and he's listening and, and like he has to follow her. And it's a real, it's an old whole thing. But like <laughs> he eventually like finds out where she is and sees her. And he's running through this crowd while fireworks are going off. And the music gets real dramatic, and that's when the slow mo happens. And I was like, <gasps> finally! <laughs> and it's like sells it with the slow mo. It's it's like if if I think of like the Fury, the main slow mo scene in that movie happens middle of the movie. Okay, like, this one he saves it until it like really counts <laughs> emotionally, and like Carrie's another example where it's like even though that's like the most emotional moment of it. That ain't the end of the movie. There's sure. a lot more movie after that. This one, it finally takes until like he sees her and he's running through this crowd. And it's like, isn't have you ever had a dream where it's like you're trying to get to somebody but or something and you but can't get there fast enough. Yeah. You're like stuck you're, in mud. Yep. And it's like that's that's all I could think of while I was watching. And like and through a crowd of indifferent people. Yeah. Like you're just running through these people slow mo style who won't get out of your way. You can't get there fast enough. And you're just you, you all you can do is see the person that you love and you're trying to get to <laughs> being murdered. It's magic. It's so good. It's so good. It and counts, then you know? When we get to him like on that that platform with like Nancy and and John Lithgow and like you know he makes John Lithgow stab himself and but like it's the scene of him holding Nancy oh, Allen with the fireworks like is there a more cinematic shot ever and it's a comp it's not even the real thing and I'm like I don't care it's just the the way that it circles with those fireworks I'm just like this is a movie Gorgeous. This is, this is what movies set out to be. Gorgeous. I love it. I struggle to think of a more emotionally explosive ending, I guess. It's just like... Pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. And like, when is there just a moment like this with the camera moving like this with those fireworks with the characters that all of our emotions are invested in just center frame. Like it's so fucking good. He's holding her in his arms as she's dead and there's fireworks. It's looking up. It's good. It's real good. It's just, it's 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 just the best. It's like the circle move that he does in uh, Phantom of the Paradise actually at the very beginning of that movie where he's like circling the piano player mm. um, but this time it's like it has this emotional weight to it like it's style married with emotional in this movie it really like crystallizes he's figured out like he has all these stylistic tricks but he's figured out how to use them for emotional impact right like the slow-mo the circle pan I don't know what you'd call that like this movie like really shows him figuring out how to use those for emotional impact. And it's effective in ways that his other movies, while I may like more cause they're more fun, don't have the same like gut punch. Right. That this one does. Right. It's just solid movie making. I just, it, it, I'd be hard pressed to think that if you're a fan of like capital M movies, 
that you wouldn't like this to at least a certain degree. Like I just, it'd be hard for me to imagine that. Yeah. Like I, I can understand like if you looked at dressed to kill or body double and being like too sexist, too objectifying, like, okay, well I don't agree with you, but like, I understand where you're coming from. But like this one, it's like the objectification all comes at sort of tasteful times. Mm -hmm. And like the movie making itself, it's so good. Like you can't deny the craft and as just like a, a standard like mainstream movie that like everyday audience people like might buy a ticket to like not knowing about Brian De Palma like can you really not enjoy this movie just based on like surface level stuff like yeah you know you can if you want to say Brian De Palma is sexist and that you don't like him as a person because of that that's fine like I'm not going to argue that but like the craft of this movie is so good. I can't see an argument against it as a, a capital M movie. And if you say you don't like this movie, I'm going to take it personally because it means you don't like sound engineers. <laughs> I was going to say, so. is it, is it reached that level? Yeah. Like, yeah. So if I said I didn't like the conversation, would you take that personally? Oh, a hundred percent. Okay. All right. Big question. movie do you like more honey oh i like them i like them these aren't your children here you have to pick one it's my sophie's choice i like them so much on different levels if i really had to pick i'd probably tonight today i'd say the conversation okay just because it surprises me when i don't expect it to I knew what to expect with blow out and my enjoyment of that on this second viewing came mostly from seeing the cogs turn and the script and all that and being like, what a well made movie this was. Uh, my enjoyment from the conversation came more from the mood of it and how it's like, I've seen this three times and I still don't remember what happens and I still like still can get into it and enjoy the feel of it. And so like, I think these are both, I mean, conversation is a top 10 movie for me blow out. Definitely in the top 50. Okay. Um, not my favorite Brian De Palma. I'd probably put dress to kill a little higher than this one, but, um, very good movie. Definitely high on my list. Yeah. So, uh, how about you? Which one did you prefer? I'm going to have to go with conversation. Just a, a, a pinch. Just because with conversation, there's something about it where when I revisited it, it kind of felt new mm -hmm. that I didn't know where it was going. I didn't remember the, the zigs and zags of it where blowout, I actually remember pretty clearly, even though it had been like seven, maybe eight years. Yeah. I don't want to fault a movie for being memorable. Like, it seems shitty to dock something Well, points. sometimes a more emotional movie is more memorable. Yeah. So. And so, for me, it just kind of comes down to when I watched the conversation, it kind of felt new and exciting. Yeah. Whereas when I watched Blowout, I was like, yep, this is just as awesome as I remember. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're talking about the tastiest apples versus the tastiest oranges here. We're, we're splitting hairs. Yeah. Yeah. 
happy with this double feature tbh i like sound engineer movies bring them on if you have any suggestions listeners send them my way for sound engineer movies yeah so barbarian sound studio whatever that harvey Keitel one was and that's a lot and i my list stopped at barbarian sound studio yeah We'll see. <laughs> anyway, two weeks from now, we've got a whole new season starting up, Matt. When we come back, it'll be December, Matt. The final month of 2020. Can it come soon enough? I don't know. But in the month of December, I'm happy to announce that our regular episodes are going to be Christmas themed. <laughs> whatever the sound of snow falling <laughs> is is that what snow falling sounds like to you okay. well it's like when you hear it in movies it's always like i get to kick this off and i'm pretty excited about this mm-hmm. uh, this is a movie i don't think you've seen yeah. i feel like you've said that a lot lately and <laughs> i've been wrong every time <laughs> so what movie do you think i have not seen I don't think you've seen the movie Tangerine. Oh, no, I haven't. Is that a Christmas movie? It's a Christmas movie, bitch. I've been meaning to watch uh, uh, Sean Baker movies because I follow him on Letterboxd. Oh, okay. He doesn't give star ratings to anything. He just writes reviews. Interesting. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious. And sometimes his reviews are ambiguous. This one, uh, I was surprised how much I liked it. I read a lot of the hype when it came out and was like, it can't be that good. Well, and I sort of passed on it for a couple of years. And then when I finally watched it, I was like, you know, this is actually, this is a quality film. So. Yeah, I kind of put it off because I thought it was just going to be woke exploitation. And uh, from what I've understood, it's not. No, yeah. It's a breezy 88 minutes too. So Yeah, it was all filmed on iPhones. Yeah, iPhones 5? sure maybe I think that's how you say it and uh we haven't done a, a movie that like focuses on trans characters and since our little mermaid episode i think was the last time we really talked about trans <laughs> issues okay I think this is important sure and it's a christmas movie it takes place on christmas eve so okay yeah i'm excited i'm excited to watch it with you and hear what you think tangerine next week now i think it's time to plug our junk on the sorted topic of coin Go to patreon.com slash X-rated movies. Why are we clapping? <laughs> it's, it's like one of those tweets where there's a clap for every word. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Patreon.com slash X-rated movies. Chip in whatever you feel is appropriate. Now is probably the best time because we have a flurry of bonus content only available to Patreons for the month of December. It's coming up. It's going to be good. We broke our back on this recording schedule. Ugh. Can't stand up straight. <laughs> Failing that, if you can't afford to uh, give us money in the money way, <laughs> uh, you can give us money in the review way, which is to give us reviews. Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, that's good. Just roll with it. 
uh, on Apple Podcasts or uh, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to support the podcast. That's free. Uh, we understand times are tough and weird, so that's a great way to support us if, can, if we're bringing you any joy at all. And uh, uh, if you just want to reach out to us, send us appreciation, hate mail. Uh, you can reach us uh, at Gmail, next.rated.movies at gmail.com. Facebook at Rated X Movies or Twitter at X Rated Movies. And, you know, if there's an episode you feel like, uh, oh, I want to I wanna check that out, but it's not in my podcast app for some reason, you can always check us out on our website, xratedmovies.com. The ever expanding X Rated Universe. Um, until two weeks from now, when we dig into Christmas with Tangerine. Keep reaching for that rainbow.